Kala. It means holy worship. Join me, your host, Robert Randall, as we delve into biblical instrumentation and music history to discover the sounds behind the words of our Savior, Yeshua Messiah. about five lyres which were unearthed in 1929 in the, the summer of, in the winter sorry of 1929 by Sir Leonard Woolley who was conducting an excavation there in, uh, in southern Iraq along with the University of, of um, Pennsylvania and uh, uh, they discovered a great death pit rural tombs and so forth and there were five lies laying there. They had been crushed by the earth. Because unlike with ancient Egypt, the uh, tombs were not in chambers. Uh, people and their uh, object were simply buried. Sometimes bodies were in special containers made of, of stone. Sometimes it was made of pottery. And sometimes they simply let uh, down covered with, with the ground, with the soil. So the instruments were not in a very good nick, obviously. They, were, they had been crushed by tons of earth because these tombs were really quite deep. And uh, they are dated about 2600 BC. So the only instruments which were left almost uh, 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 in their entirety were two of these which were covered with silver. And uh, because they were covered, silver and of course they were crushed it was possible to uh, lift them off the ground very carefully uh, and prior they had been covered with wax so to facilitate the lifting and then once they were away they could be transported to the British Museum and then at the museum uh, they were carefully cleaned up and uh, this silver lie which was uh, uh, which stayed at the British Museum was then examined uh, 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 drawings were made of it uh, very carefully and then after some years it was decided uh, that was in the 60s that it should be reconstructed so therefore there was a team led by Podro and they started to lift off all the bits of silver number them uh, uh, put them aside then decided on the major size and volume of the structure which had been of wood and made a, a plastic uh, model of it on which they glued back each of the little silver bits in order to reconstruct the instrument. Organological issues were the most important to start with in that when the silver, which had corroded immensely, was taken off the, the uh, um, wax uh, uh, material which preserved them after the excavation and prior to the reconstruction, the silver was then um, placed in special kilns in order that the corrosion would uh, disappear, leaving uh, proper silver. But this uh, way of, of dealing with the silver had very bad results in the sense that silver became very elastic and didn't want to stay, to stay uh, still. It always curved like crisps. So there were many methods which were devised, different types of glue to see if the, the silver would finally stick 
onto the plastic and it was a hell of a job. It took months before the uh, uh, bits of silver uh, managed to fit on the, on the instrument. But so also there were other issues. In, in the 60s, the purpose of reconstructing a musical instrument was more uh, regarding its aspect than its value as a musical instrument. So therefore, many, many of the imp important details of its structure were got rid of to the profit of how the instrument looked. And uh, there were many artistic licenses regarding its reconstruction it was an absolute disaster. And actually, the instrument, as it stands in the British Museum, is, is, has no value of organology for anybody simply looking at it. What was important is all the notes which I have read, uh, many, many notes of reconstruction, and all the origin drawings. But the instrument, as it stands, has got no organological value whatsoever. It is a total mess. Uh, very sad. This is why I decided to, to reconstruct it. <coughs> and the, the first, most important thing is that uh, Woolley noted that when he lifted the soundboard of the instrument, or rather the soundbox, is that both sides had been crushed one against the other. And when these two layers were separated, it was, uh, uh, they revealed that there was only a very thin layer of dust between the two uh, plates of silver. And this was so extremely important because it meant that there was, the silver was not glued or positioned on a support which might have been wood, which could have been leather or whatever. Uh, it simply meant that the soundboards, the front one and the back one, were indeed made of silver, and that the silver was about 40% uh, of a millimeter, for hundreds of a millimeter. This was so incredibly important because it's the first time in the history of musical instruments that we have soundboards in silver. Uh, we thought that prior to this, we thought that mainly they were made of wood, they were made of leather, because, and mainly of leather, of rawhide rather more than leather, because it's a material which, when dries, is extremely strong and doesn't suffer from variations in the humidity levels in the atmosphere, so totally suitable for southern Iraq. Wood is less appropriate because, firstly, uh, they would have needed to have special saws to, to saw uh, a plate of wood, a plank of wood, which was, would have been only one millimeter, 0.5 in thickness. And then they would have to loose uh, uh, planks one against the other to finally manage to make a full soundboard. And I do not believe that this was possible at that time because they didn't have the proper equipment. And that secondly, had they managed to have the technology to, uh, to build a soundboard in this way, then it would have cracked all the time. Because in southern Iraq, you have levels of hygrometry which can be very high at certain times of the year, and suddenly it can become, ex the, 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 the climate dries suddenly, and you can have just as little as 5% hygrometry. So between saturation of humidity in the air to 5%, it is absolutely uh, um, impossible uh, to have a plant which remains on split. So this proposal is not a, a valid one. My methodology with this is simply to, to do the replication of the instrument without having any kind of inspiration from 
any form of texts because I wanted to remain absolutely true to the quality of the original uh, archaeological drawings. That was it. So I built the instrument and we made with Miriam Masoto, who is currently doing a postdoctoral research with me at the museum, we started to make calculations with regard what would be the ideal a string uh, not length because the length is defined by the shape of the instrument so we knew that the strings average about 80 centimeters in length uh, and of course because of this structure the strings were about all about the same length because of the trapezoidal form of the instrument with variations between only 76 to 84 so an average of 80 uh, uh, or about 80. so we defined the um, uh, the mass of the strings and the tension they would have had at the time and the tension was and the mass was uh, uh, made in relation to the materials that they would have used so we know that a string in uh, um, is sa in sumerian that's the name for a string which is bitnu in akkadian and we know that sa and bitnu is also a term to this to to, which means gut or tendon. But with regard to a music instrument, we think that the gut was more appropriate. We know that in, at the time in, in, in Sumer, in southern Iraq, they would have used indiscriminately guts of any kinds of animals, the bull, the cow, the deer, the fallow deers, lambs, rams, uh, uh, and pigs. Uh, because we remember that uh, Judaism doesn't exist yet, and therefore pig is okay. And uh, why not cats, you know, chickens, whatever they would have used it. They use it because guts, with all animals, including the human variety, have got extremely good qualities. It's a material which can be used to, as a sheath for a knife, which can, which can have so many, you can sew with it, so leather bits in it, you can make shoes with it. And of course, when you twist a gut, you simply use it as a string. And of course, if the string is not thick enough, you take two lengths of gut and you twist them together. Why not three, four and five, you know, as long as you obtain a proper result. So our calculations um, on this instrument, uh, the result of these calculations uh, uh, meant that it was a pig's gut that was used and that the the uh, string at the treble would have consisted in only one gut twisted on itself and the first gut, the, the, the base, the, the upper base, the, the lower base string of it would have been four uh, guts twisted together and it, this was what the mathematics of it gave us. So this was interesting, so we, we, a string is as at best when it is about uh, only 20% away from the breaking point. That is, you pull a string and it is just about to break, it is then that it sounds to its best. So, having done this with the strings and having achieved a, a, a good result, that is that the the sound was good, the, the tension of the string was good, the pressure on it was good, so therefore we had a playable set of strings, consistent of pigs, guts, as I said, one, two, four lengths together. I decided to measure what they gave us in, in hertz. That is, hertz are simply units of, of frequency. And to my greatest amazement, 
The central note gave 294 hertz, which is D. And what do we have in ancient texts, a text called Nebit Nu 32? The, the uh, uh, text implies that indeed the, the, the instrument, uh, uh, which is the, the strings of the instrument, which are listed on this tablet, indicate very clearly and without any dispute that the central note, string, note, five, was indeed a D. So there, the textual evidence confirm the validity of the replication of the instrument, the validity of the organology. So this is absolutely fantastic. It proved that what we had done by empiricism was confirmed indeed by the textual evidence. The D is uh, reached as uh, uh, noted, it could be a C sharp. It could be, no, it cannot be now because we know it was 294 hertz. And in, in our modern scale, uh, uh, 294 hertz is a D when the A is 440 hertz. Hertz. So there's absolutely no problem. It is a D full stop. But what I mean, the original Nebit Nu 32 text it, it lists strings in this way. It says it in both Sumerian and Akkadian. It's a bilingual text, but I will not bother you with this. I will simply say it in English. The first string is called first string. We have second string, third thin string, fourth string created by the god Ea. Ea was the god of wisdom, music, and balance. Uh, then we have the fifth string. Then we've got the fourth string of the behind, third string of the behind, second string of the behind, and behind string. For a long time, many scholars couldn't see the significance of having a third thin string. For any musicologist, it's quite obvious. A third thin string, uh, being thin by its definition, uh, implies that it is at the treble of the instrument. And also it implies that it is uh, uh, possibly a string which might be tuned in different ways because it, had, it has an adjective attached to it. And then we have the next string, the fourth string, which is, has been created by the god Ea. And this means that this fourth string would have been placed there in order to correct some imperfection in a system. This is implied in it. And when we uh, read the text carefully, we realize that the central note, the note of string five, has to be a D and that the two opposites are one-fifth apart and must be an A at the treble and must be an A at the bass. And then you tune up a fourth from the bass to, towards the treble and then a fourth down from the treble's note to down and so forth. And you finally obtain a remarkable uh, pentatonic uh, structure. And then you complement it to obtain a diatonic any atonic structure, that is a structure with nine notes. And because of the symmetry, which was um, so important in Sumerian times, uh, the central note has to be a D in order to generate the symmetry, with the third note and the fourth note working uh, in relation to their opposite in the bass as the tritonic note being corrected by the fourth. And this is where resides the interesting thing about this uh, listing of notes. The Sumerians used the system of mathematics, which was the sexagesimal system, which uh, had been prior to this, the base six system, 
the numbers initially were 6543 and then they decided for more accuracy in the uh, uh, measures it was good to decimalize it so it became 60 50 40 and 30. now the central note uh, uh, would have been 60 which was the number by which the top god anu was named anu was the god 60 and the god of one because of course in sexual mathematics 60 equals to one because when you arrive at 60 the 60 becomes the one and so forth the the god which was the, the god Ea, which is the most important is the god of 40 and this 40 indicates that of course if you've got 60 50 which is the god seen you have a, this is the ratio of the minor third 50 to 40 this is a major third so therefore you have two thirds bringing uh, two fifths and the ratio of ar to 30 is a fourth so therefore the cosmology of the gods is present in the notes and they define the structure the fundamental structure of the scale because once you have a fourth and you've got a fifth you subtract the fourth from the fifth and you've got the tone when you've got a third a minor third and you have its reciprocal it becomes a major six and a major third because of minor six so the ratios 60 50 14 30 contain all the essential numbers to create a sexagesimal system of music and this was known about 5,000 years ago well this instrument is the as you can see the replication of the the live we have at the British Museum in room G56 now uh, uh, this instrument was unearthed by, not this one, the one in G6, was unearthed by Woolley in the winter of 1929. And uh, for me, it constituted the best preserved item because it was covered in silver and all of the silver had been crushed uh, uh, flat in the tombs. Uh, the outlines were sufficient for making proper reconstructions. Uh, in then the silver lie was transported to the British Museum after it had been covered with a layer of wax so that it could be lifted properly out of the ground. At the museum, the major task was to then melt the wax in order to reveal the silver which had corroded enormously. Then in '59, uh, 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 in '49, sorry, in the summer of '49, an attempt was made at displaying to the public. And after the uprights had been filled with more wax, the instrument uh, was standing up on a pedestal. And there was a very, very heated summer of uh, 49. And uh, uh, one day the wax simply melted and the instrument collapsed in, in, uh, in front of the public being there looking at it. So after it collapsed in, in 49, the instrument was taken off public display and it took ages, it took until 1969 because the, before the instrument could be reconstructed. But then what happened? It was the late 60s and the, the principle of conservation of items in the museum was to make them look very much like they were in, the, in their lifetime. And this was to the detriment of organology, which was a science nobody had heard at the time. So a lot of the essential uh, bits were destroyed, 
uh, and will never be uh, um, recovered. However, the uh, documentation at the museum was sufficiently uh, important for me to make serious uh, um, uh, researches with regard to proper organological reconstruction. So this is what happened. We first discovered that the soundboard had been made of silver, and it was not simply silver which covered the soundboard. The soundboard indeed was silver, and how do we know this? It's because there was only a small amount of dust between the two parts of the soundboard, and therefore we are absolutely certain that the silver was not simply glued to a wooden basis. Now, we have here the soundboard, we have here the uprights, this is the yoke, these are the tuning levers, the strings, of course, and the bridge. Now, we're absolutely certain that this was the length of the strings, the reason being that the instrument was flat on its side in the tomb and nothing had been disturbed. We could even find traces of the string on the ground where it had been resting. Uh, as a matter of fact, the instrument was resting on the side of the bridge, and this was very useful because it allowed the strings to leave their impression onto the silver plate. So we knew exactly what was the fan angle, therefore what would have been the length of the string. They average about 80 centimeters, with the longest being about 83 centimeters, and the shortest about 72. This was important as it helped us to define what would have been the tension and the mass of each, taking into account that mostly these would have been uh, as a gut from pigs which had been twisted raw and then allowed to dry. There was another important uh, thing to discover is that the tuning levers that we have at the museum are pierced in two places and I was always wondering why they had been and the answer is simple. Whereas in the Ethiopian Bagana and uh, early uh, light types of Africa, the tuning is mainly done by rotating the levers around the yoke. The Sumerians had progressed in this, that the levers simply had to be turned around like ordinary tuning pegs. And this was indeed an innovation in the history of making instruments. The tuning of this instrument was a rather more complex matter. I have spoken before, and so did Irving Finkel, about a cuneiform text which is called UET 726, which is a late Babylonian copy of a much older text, which was called Nebitnu 32. Uh, and Nebitnu 32 was a collection of, of lexical texts, and the second, 32nd tablet of which was devoted to the naming of musical strings. This tablet mentioned nine strings, and they were labeled first string, second string, third thin string, fourth string created by the god Ea, who was the god of balance and the god of music, fifth string, fourth string of the behind, third string of the behind, second string of the behind, and behind string. For a long time, uh, we wondered what was the reason for this uh, form of numbering the notes and uh, the strings of the notes. And I came to the following conclusion. Because Sumerians were highly motivated by all symmetrical things, I derived that the tuning of the instrument would also be done in symmetry. And therefore, they would take a central note, 
which is this one. And they would tune a fifth from it going up. And from the central note, they would tune a fifth down. And then from the fifth down, they would tune a fourth up. And from the uppermost string, they would tune a fourth down. Then from the central string, they would tune a fourth down and up. So therefore, they were arriving at a system which had to be a pentatonic system. To complement the enneatonic system, they would have to add notes within the span. And these notes would be and this one, which amount to the triton, which is the satanic interval in music. Indeed, it was called in the Middle Ages, Sifa Diabolus in Musica Est. C, B and F is the devil in music. And of course, this, this uh, interval is diabolical. But anyway, it had to, it needs by mathematical necessity to exist in any mode uh, that you can think of. But this uh, uh, produced the following scale, which is what I call the enetonic system, because it's a system made of nine notes. Now, we have had a look at this lie, and we see that indeed it has 11 strings. So what was going on? Well, as you can see, this bass string is offset. It is not within the trapezoidal shape of the lyre. And therefore, my conclusion is that this was added a bit later, and therefore, in order to respect symmetry, this one was added at the same time. And uh, we, we then have 11 strings. Why did they not like the, the, the system with seven notes that we know as heptatonic, or the 11 the string system, which is called uh, the Hendrik Accord or the Triskaidic Accord with 13 strings, because these numbers are not regular numbers. And we know from uh, tablets we found in the Temple Library in Nippur that the music system is based strictly on regular numbers, excluding 7, excluding 11 and 13. And therefore, the ideal number to contain the musical scale was a night note system, the enetonic system. Now, I will show you how the tuning was done roughly, because it take, can take a certain amount of time. Now, we said we've got the central note is a D, and they will tune the fifth above, but this is about just, and then a fifth down, that's about just, then a fourth up, and then a fourth down from here, one, two, three, four. And from the fifth to fourth, and here too. So we have, which is a pentatonic scale. Then we need to tune the third, and this one having the triton. In fact, we are tuned here. Then we can tune the first string and the last one, amounting to a triton also. So. complete system here of 11 notes that we call a handicap chord. 
I believe that the Hendrik Accord was a development from the energetic system at a the time they said, they said, well, you know, it's nice to be forbidden having 11 strings because the Nippur text says so. And why not try with 11 strings? It, it enlarges our span a bit more. And of course, it will allow for m more modes to be played within a system. As indeed with 11 strings, we have the first mode, two, three, four.